Heavenly Father, Father, I ask that you would lead us as you have led your people. That is, Father, by your spirit and according to your word. And that you'd lead us patiently as you do the, the people of Israel. And that you'd lead us, Father, with uh, kindness and mercy as you've done for them. But I also acknowledge, Father, that as we cho- uh, desire to be led and as we choose to follow, there will be consequences for disobedience at times. For that's what you do in love. You cause us to have reason to follow you and to remind us that disobedience is not what you prefer, not what you ask us to do. Lord, I pray that you'd use the time we gather here on Sundays and the time we are with one another to be built up for that purpose, for obedience sake. That we'd be convicted or we'd be encouraged, exhorted, as it were, through the scripture to be more like you in time at times where we wouldn't be otherwise. And we'd learn from the lessons of those who've come before us, both those in the church and those in Israel, that we would uh, be able to take from what they have experienced and make good use of it in our own lives. I pray this would be your purpose, Father. I pray you'd use that for each of us individually, giving us a heart, Father, to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, following our introduction last week, we are ready to dive into the book of Judges into chapter one. Now, let me summarize quickly what we learned last week in the introduction. And it's basically two things overall. First, Israel is about to lose their national leader, that is Joshua, and he's not going to be replaced. So the first thing we learned is we've moved out of a period of their history in which a single strong national leader had control of the whole of the nation to a period of time in which now God expects those tribes he's created under Jacob through his family would obey him by their own leadership within themselves. That is, as a group of tribes under theocracy, under the rule of God by law, they would do the right thing. Secondly, we learned that as a result of losing Joshua and the elders of that generation, the people of Israel did not live up to the expectations God set for them. They wandered away from the Lord and they committed Apostasy. As we saw at the end of the book last week, they begin to do what is right in their own eyes. That phrase epitomizes the nature of the times of the time of Judges. So as we progress through this period of Judges, we're examining our our goal in this study is to examine how the people of Israel behaved during a time of tribal rule with judges appointed to administer the law to them. One of the challenges of studying this book is the structure of this book. So Samuel did not write this book as a strict narrative of history. He wasn't just trying to recount 300 years of history. Instead, he was trying to make a point. And the point he's trying to make is about the deterioration of Israel and the causes for her apostasy, which then become an introduction to where he goes next in the books First and Second Samuel, where he gets to explain why the theocracy gave way to a monarchy and what followed from that. And so the handout you have now that's accompanying this lesson, if you get one today, you can keep it with you. If you lose it, it's available as a download online as part of this lesson when it's online. This handout will give you that historical overview of the book and also a breakdown of the chapters. And as we said, these chapters do not run chronologically. In fact, to give you a quick explanation of the chapters, one and two are a review of how Israel progressed in conquering the land after they entered with Joshua. Chapters 17 through 21 at the end, They're going to summarize the main consequences of Israel's failure to defeat the people in the land. And between them, between those two bookends, chapters 3 through 16, that's your chronological period of history explaining six stages of apostasy, six periods of apostasy in the nation of Israel. So 
chapters 17 and later at the very end, they are not chronological. They don't follow what comes in the middle. You have that center part that's chronological and you have these end caps at the beginning and at the end that are summaries and discuss really more the meaning of what's happened during this period. They're going to focus on two specific consequences, consequences for Israel, which are set up in chapter one this morning. The two consequences that we'll examine at the end of the book are the migration of the tribe of Dan from the southern part of the nation where they had property originally, where their land was originally, to the very northern part of Israel where they then settled in. And secondly, the war of the Benjamites, the civil war that took place within the tribe of Benjamin. These two things might seem unrelated and not altogether very important, but they prove to be. They are major consequences of the period of Judges, and we begin to see how these things came about now in chapter 1. Take note in the beginning here of chapter 1 of how Judah are portrayed in contrast to Benjamin. And you'll begin to see how these things start to weave together. Let's start in verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Well, come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I, in turn, will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they defeated 10,000 men at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to gather up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Well, that was an exciting beginning. Thumbs getting cut off and all the rest. Samuel begins this account describing the first military campaign that Israel follows after Joshua's death. The fight begins with Judah, who Jacob declared that Judah would be the leader among all the tribes. And we know that from Jacob's deathbed blessing of his sons, Judah would be the one from whom kings would later arise, would later lead the people. So in keeping with that plan, when the people say to God, well, who's going to lead us now in the fight against the Canaanites? God replies, well, let Judah lead the fight. And now when you see references here to Judah or Simeon in this passage, we're not talking about an individual. We're talking about the whole tribe, not the man of the name, but the people group. So it's the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Simeon, which share a border in the promised land in the south. They become allies. They basically say to one another, you know what? If you help me, I'll help you. You fight with me, I'll fight with you. We'll we'll clear the Canaanites out of the land that God has appointed to us. Now, a moment of background on Canaanites is worth our attention in order to follow what comes next in the text. A Canaanite refers to anyone who's descended from Canaan. Do you remember who Canaan was? The grandson of Noah. And you might remember from our study of Genesis, that moment after the flood in Genesis 9, when we read in 9.20 that Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders, walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away, so they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, 
A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Now, Ham was the one who dishonored his father. He dishonored his father by witnessing his unclothed state and then telling his brothers about it. And when he did that and Noah woke up and heard about it, Noah responded with a curse. But Noah cursed Ham's son, Canaan, not Ham himself. We studied this at the time, and time doesn't allow me to go through the full analysis of why he did that. But to summarize it, he wasn't going to curse Ham. Ham was a child of God. Ham was righteous by faith. That's how he was able to enter onto the ark in the first place. So a man or woman made righteous by faith will never be cursed by God. But there was to be a penalty nonetheless for Ham's family because of what Ham did. So God instead, through Noah's prophetic words, put a curse upon his son. Canaan, as we studied in Genesis. Now, that curse becomes the basis for Israel's blessing in the land. The Canaanite people eventually migrate from where they got off the ark at the flood. They migrate into present-day Palestine, into the larger area that we consider Israel today. They came in, they set up cities, they planted vineyards, they worked the land, they made a home for themselves there. That's a lot of hard work. That's centuries and centuries of work to take land and make it inhabitable. The Canaanites did this, the descendants of Canaan. They lived there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And then in the proper time, God called a man, Abram, out of a land, Ur, told him to go to a land I will show you, which turned out to be Canaan. And then the Lord said to Abram, this will be your home. In a day to come, this will be your inheritance. And from your seed, I will make a people and I will give the people this land. And he later, as we remember, takes Israel out of the land, puts them in Egypt. Then he frees them from Egypt. Then he wanders them for a time. And then after the wandering with Joshua's help, they're in the land. Here we are now in the land of Canaan that was promised to these people from long ago. Now, the Lord could have left the promised land vacant for all of those centuries. He could have left it just open empty, ready for the Israelites, and barred anyone from ever living there, supernaturally or however, so that on the day that he was ready to give it to Israel, they would have walked into an empty piece of land, no fights, no wars, no Jericho, no nothing, just ready for them. He could have done that. But what would it have been like for Israel had he gone that route? Well, they would have walked into a desolate land, overrun by wild animals and and brush and whatever else. There would have been no cities, No planting, no farming, no wells dug, nothing ready for them. They would have had to have worked to produce all of that for themselves. Meanwhile, how are they going to support millions of people who come into the land needing food on day one? That doesn't sound like a very optimal way to enter into the promised land. Instead, the Lord did for Israel much the same thing he did for Adam and woman when he created them in the beginning. He made a perfect home for them right from the start. Right from the first day, they have an Eden, if you will, of their own in the form of a land prepared by Canaanite people. Cities ready to inhabit, vineyards ready to take over, crops ready to harvest, wells already dug, wild animals run out, fences set up, walls built. All of that has already been done for them. Joshua told us last week that all of these things were done for them so that when they walk into the land, they're walking into Eden, more or less. Now, the final piece in God's plan for giving Israel the promised land was to ensure that whoever was there in the day Israel arrived would be properly dealt with. That is to say that they would be cursed according to his judgment so that they could be justly removed so that Israel could have their place. 
God has to be just. And the justice here is in the fact that by declaration, Canaan's line has been cursed so that there would be a day in which that judgment would be come to pass. They would see the sentence passed. So the Lord ordered Israel to take the land from the Canaanites and to destroy the Canaanite people in the process because that was simply executing the sentence that had already been pronounced many, many years earlier by Noah. So that everything is prepared for Israel, everything is ready for them. The Canaanite people, you remember from what I just read in Noah's day, the Canaanite people were to be the servants of Israel and uh, all the brothers that he had, both Japheth and Shem. So the descendants of those people are served by the Canaanites. And in this case, serving them meant... Preparing the land for the people, not serving them by living there with them and being their servants. That was not God's intention. Rather, his intention was that once it came time for Israel to show up, the Canaanites would become no more. God prepared every detail so that Israel could enter the land and enjoy it from day one. Now, as you think about that plan and you see the way that the hand of God was working over centuries, over generations, reminds us of something we need to keep in the forefront of our thinking, even as we live now. And that is that we often lack the perspective to understand how God is working for our good through circumstances that may not appear to be very good from our point of view. As Christians, I know we all like to quote Romans 8:28, right? Most of us can even say it by heart. He works all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? That's a very important verse. We should know it. It gives us reassurance that even when things look bleak, You can trust the Lord is going to get something good out of it, that he's not doing it to harm us. He's doing it for our good. And that's true. But here's the question. What happens when a month goes by or a year goes by or a decade goes by or a lifetime goes by and you never find or seem to find the good that you thought would come from some calamity in your life? The Romans 828 promise, as some would call it, just doesn't seem to happen. Does your faith in God's goodness waver when you're in that situation? Do you begin to question whether or not you can put your faith and reliance on God to do what's right and what's good when, when you just never see the other side of the equation play out? How many people have you encountered who will tell you they no longer go to church or in some cases they repudiate ever having had faith in God at all? They say, I no longer have faith. And when you dig a little deeper on the why, they'll come back with this answer. How many of you have heard this? The answer is, well, because of some tragedy, so-and-so died. I prayed for my, for my father, mother, brother, sister, friend on the deathbed, and God didn't answer my prayer, so I'm done with God. Or I can't follow a God who would allow that tsunami to kill all those people. Or I can't allow a God who would let the towers fall and kill my father-in-law. That, that, that can't be God anymore. In other words, something happens that we don't understand that hurts us very much. And we can't see anything good out of it, so it becomes our excuse to do really what a sinful heart always wants to do, which is to rebel against God. But now we seem to have an excuse that gives us justification to do it. Well, in those moments, turn your thoughts back to Canaan, of all places. Because the sin of Ham's life and the curse that followed resulted ultimately in immense good for God's people. But how long did that take? How many generations, how many people had to be born, live and die and never see the result of the good that was ultimately planned because of something that happened generations earlier? What Ham did and what God did in response through Noah set the stage for immense blessing for a whole nation of people, none of whom existed when the original events took place. Now, the good of Noah's circumstances was not even visited upon Noah directly. 
or upon Ham directly or upon anyone who lived for centuries? How long did it take for the good to eventually show up? Friends, it can be that way for us, too. God works on a timeline that is so vast, you can't begin to understand or anticipate all that he's planning to do with the events that you encounter on a given day. There's no way we can know that. We might even see a little of it, and boy, we're blessed if we do. But don't expect that. Don't demand that of God. Only what he chooses to reveal to us by his word or by his spirit will be within our knowing. And yet, we're going to experience tragedies. That's a given. So as we experience them from time to time in our life, and you search for the good that God may be doing through it, that's fine. But don't expect that because you want it, you'll see it in your lifetime. Maybe you will. Maybe it'll be evident in eternity. Maybe the good is simply in the way we respond to the tragedy, we earn his pleasure in reward. Maybe that's the extent of it. But we can always remain confident in the goodness of God. You don't judge him according to what you see. You judge him according to his word and the history of what he's done. Now you can see the good, at least I hope you can see the good, of what God is doing here. As Judah marches north, we're told, against the first Canaanite city. The city is Bezek. Now, Bezek was a Canaanite city in the hill country of Ephraim. This is actually in the tribal land of Manasseh. Why is Judah going up to fight in a city that's not even in his own home Territory. It's not part of Judah. It's not part of what Simeon had. The reason is because this is a stronghold of the Canaanites. This king is a man of great influence and strength in the entire region. So he starts by taking on the toughest city in the region, defeats that king, and that gives him room then to work in defeating more around him. So the point of the battle is to capture the king. Now, the king's name is Adonai Bezek. You notice the relationship to the name of the city, right? And you heard the word Adonai before, I'm sure. The word Adonai just means Lord. Bezek's the name of the city, so you can tell this isn't actually his name. This is his title. He's Lord of Bezek, the king of Bezek. When you capture a king, you demoralize the enemy. When you capture the leader, you demoralize the force that he commands. That's the goal. So now the question arises, well, they've captured him. Why did they have to cut off his thumbs and his big toes? That seems cruel, right? It, it seems vicious. doesn't seem to serve any purpose. Well, Wait a minute. Think about it for a second. What was he doing right before they caught him? He was fleeing. You notice that he was running away. Well, without big toes, you you can barely walk, much less run. And without thumbs, you can't hold a sword. You can't fight back. These actions of cutting off thumbs and, and toes, that serves as a form of handcuffs and shackles. Only these are permanent, which is what they want. In his current state, he is no longer a threat and he cannot escape, which is key to their victory. And you also notice the fact that this guy appreciates that the justice that's been done to him is one that he was previously doing to others. So turn around is fair play. He himself acknowledges that. But that also tells us that what Judah did here is not unprecedented, that it was, in fact, a norm of his day in the face of an opponent. When you capture him and you need to neutralize him, you really have two choices, broadly speaking. You can kill him or you can simply maim him so that he's no longer a threat. I suggest to you that if you had asked the king which of the two he might have preferred, I suggest he would have preferred maiming over just being killed outright. Nevertheless, it says when they take him to Jerusalem as a prisoner of war for the next battle at that city, he dies there. We don't know how he died, perhaps from his injuries, perhaps for other reasons. But in any event, he's gone. Now we move a little step further in the battle. Verse eight. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it. And struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and in the lowland. This is now getting into Simeon's territory. 
So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. And they struck Shishai and Ahaman and Tamai. Then from there, he went against the inhabitants of Debir. Now, the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, the one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will even give him my daughter, Aksa, for a wife. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, for a wife. Then it came about when she came to him that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Then she alighted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. The descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad. And they went and lived with the people. Then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanite living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. And Judah took Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. Now the Lord was with Judah and they took possession of the hill country. But they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. Then they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had promised, and he drove out from there the three sons of Anak. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. All right, well, lots of names and places, but hopefully as we go through it, you'll begin to see a plot thickening here a little. So let me summarize. Verse 8, you've got Judah attacking the next Canaanite city, Jerusalem. Now, at this point in history, Jerusalem is not the one you see today. This is a very small, unfortified city at the top of Mount Moriah. It was a Jebusite city. Jebusites were descendants of Canaanite peoples as well. Judah did the job God commanded. He conquers the city. He burns it. Then he proceeds south back into the territories of Judah and Simeon. He defeats town after town of Canaanites. Now, things are looking pretty good at this point. They're waging war, they're clearing out the Canaanites, they're opening up the land for the tribe of Judah and Simeon. Joshua has died, Judah's making all this progress, the Lord says here is with Judah, blessing his people. We see Samuel remarking the Lord here is with him. So all's good, right? Now, at this point though, Samuel takes a little moment in the narrative to highlight an important character, a guy named Othniel. Now look at your little sheet, you'll notice on the timeline here, who's the first name you see in the period of Judges? Othniel. Turns out this is the first judge. He's not a judge yet. But he's going to be and Samuel introduces him here early. So, you know, that he's somebody we're going to be learning more about later. He is the younger brother of Caleb. Now, do you remember that name, Caleb? Caleb is one of the bold warriors, along with Joshua, that helped Israel leave the wilderness and enter into the land. He was one of the spies who reported truthfully about what they saw in the land back under Moses. Now, this little story you see here in Judges 1 of what Othniel did and how he got his wife, that happened under Joshua. This is a flashback. Earlier in the campaigns of Joshua, Othniel played a significant part in capturing a city called Kiriath Sefer. This scene of him defeating the city happened back when Joshua was still alive, running the show and leading battles. See, here's one of those moments where you have to know you're going back in time. When that prior moment occurred, as Samuel reminds us here, Caleb offered the chance to win this daughter to the man who would win the city. And when Othniel heard of the offer to take this daughter... He said, that's all I need. I'm going to defeat this city. And he went in, defeated the city, and in return, he receives Aksa as his wife. So that's all happened before. Why is Samuel retelling the story again now? Because you can read this same story, by the way, in Joshua. Why is it here? Two reasons. 
First, he's emphasizing that even though the town was taken before under Joshua, here we go again having to take it again. Now, it's got a different name now. Now it's called Debir, but it's the same place. Still got Canaanites in it. What happened? Why didn't the first defeat settle the issue? Well, friends, just because you defeat a city doesn't mean it ceases being a threat. You have to remove the inhabitants. You have to wipe out the people because you know what happens after you defeat it and you walk away. What do they do? They start cleaning up the place. They go right back to fixing it up and living there again. You have to remove the people if you're going to remove the threat. That's lesson number one. Secondly, Samuel is showcasing the strength and resourcefulness of women, particularly the women of Israel in these early days of Judges, right after Joshua's entry into the land, while Joshua is still leading the people. Look at these women, and particularly in this case, Aksa, who sort of represents them for the moment. After Othniel wins Aksa's hand, she has the initiative to tell her husband, you need to go petition Caleb, my father, for an inheritance in the land. Smart thing. Then notice very carefully when they go to Caleb, who does all the talking? Aksa. She gets off her donkey. That is to say, she rode in on a donkey, which would have been traditional. I mean, the man would have walked. He would have had her on a donkey. But when the time comes to negotiate with dad, she doesn't just stay up on the saddle. She gets down on the ground and starts having the conversation. She persuades dad for land. And then smartly, she says, you know, land in the Negev doesn't do us any good without water. Dad, you need to make sure we get the springs as well. And dad says, all right, you can have the springs. Go, girl. So she's bold, she's smart, which are qualities that you can imagine perhaps came from growing up in a period of time of war and conquest and then moving around in the desert. You know, these are like road warrior women. These are like Mel Gibson women from the movies. Anyway, and I mean that in the highest sense of compliment. We'll just take that out of the recording. Uh, So it would seem the women of Israel were molded by their experiences under Joshua and have become a really resourceful group of leaders, of leaders. And by the way, there is nothing unbiblical about that concept. I mean, there is nothing at all contrary to biblical perspectives. When we describe a woman as bold or strong or a leader, a woman who can take charge, these are not antithetical to godliness in the least. So we're left wondering at this point, what's up with her husband? Why wasn't he capable of doing the same? The norm of the day would have been for the man to take this leadership role, to make this initiative, to negotiate these terms, to even have had the thought. But where is he? The fact that Aksa does what she does in place of her husband is both credit to her and a warning cloud of Israel's future under these kind of men and under what's coming in the culture. This is Samuel's attempt to show us early on of a dysfunctional aspect of Israel society. And again, not to the discredit of the woman, far from it, but on the flip side, to the men. And as you're going to see throughout the book of Judges, women are an important subplot or storyline within the book of Judges. The story of Judges tells a similar story of decline with regard to women as it does with regard to the overall culture. The book begins here with strong women like Aksa. Later, it's going to be Deborah. But by the end of the book, and I'm not going to give too much away today, but by the end of the book, you're going to be studying about another woman riding on a donkey. But the story in that case goes very differently than the one you see here at the beginning. And it's this little detail of the donkey that's intended to tie your attention to the two ends, to this story and connect it to the one at the end, which we will do when we get there. But for now, Judah's making proper inroads into the land. The Canaanite cities in Judah and Simeon, and even some of the cities in Benjamin. Jerusalem is a city in the tribe of Benjamin. It's Benjamin's city. So we're seeing these cities conquered, some in Manasseh, some in Ephraim. 
And even the relatives, you notice, of Moses, his father-in-law, the Kenites. Remember, his daughter was from Midian. So his wife, he married in Midian. His wife's father was a Kenite. And then when Moses brought the people out into the wilderness, Moses brought his father-in-law's family with him, the Kenites. Now you notice, though, they choose to separate themselves. They leave the city of Palms, which is a reference to Jericho. They leave the city of Jericho. And it says they go out into the wilderness probably to return to their nomadic lifestyle, which they had in Midian. And it says they go out to be a part of the peoples. And in Hebrew, the word peoples is goyim, it's, it's Gentiles. So they return to being Gentiles. They separate themselves. That's actually a good thing. You're seeing, again, more evidence that God's plan is coming to pass. The non-Jewish people of the land are moving out to make room for Israel. But then Samuel leaves us with one ominous detail. He says the city of Jerusalem has fallen. Judah conquered it, burned it, did what God called him to do. And then in verse 21, we read the Benjamites allow the cursed Canaanite people to remain there living in the city. That's not the plan. That's the first indication that the plan is going sideways. Later, you may know, it comes down to David to eventually conquer this city and to make it the Jewish capital later in his day. At this early point, though, they've got the city. They burned it. It's theirs for the taking. Judah burned it because Judah's leading the campaign. But this is a Benjamite piece of land. It's a Benjamite city. So it should have been the case that after Judah wipes it out, the Benjamites get on their horses and drive in and they occupy their city. They come, but they don't kick out the Canaanites, the Jebusites specifically. This is Samuel's first point of background for us to understand the story of Judges. The good things Judah's doing here are being followed by the disobedient things of Benjamin. And it won't stop there. Look at the rest of the chapter. The other tribes likewise fail to drive out the inhabitants after Judah has cleared the land. Verse 22. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now, the name of the city was formerly Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city and they struck the city with the edge of the sword and they let the man and all his family go free. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshean and its villages or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. It came about when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh or the inhabitants of Bet Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. And Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shahabim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. 
The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Salah and upward. Now, throughout that passage, you notice a phrase repeated? Did not drive out, did not drive out. Over and over, tribe after tribe. It begins with the tribes of Joseph, which is really a way of summarizing both Ephraim and Manasseh working together. They don't take the Hittites out, even after they defeat them. Now, notice how they even defeated the city. They make an agreement with one of the Hittites. They say, show us a way in and we'll let you go. God didn't tell them to do that. That's not the plan. When God talked to Joshua and to the other tribes, he said, go in and make arrangements and come up with little schemes and make negotiations. He said, go drive them out. And he said, I'll do it with you. You don't have to worry about how. They compromised. They made a man-made solution in place of relying on the Lord. They turned to human wisdom and strategy instead of just doing what God asked them to do. And it may seem like a small thing that they let one guy go and his family, right? I mean, what's the big deal? Look what the guy did. He set up a whole other city. Right? I mean, the point of what Samuel's telling us is that one compromise had a big impact later. And it's just one example. These people as a whole, the nation of Israel, settled for peace and ease of living over obedience. And that's often a compromise we can make, too. We learned earlier that you may have to wait a long time to see the good things that God brings from calamity. We learned that earlier this morning. But, friends, it works the opposite way as well. Sometimes it takes a long time for the negative consequences of our sin to eventually play out, and they might hurt a lot of other people along the way. So what you're seeing here are small decisions, small moments of disobedience, little errors, if you might call them little, that are going to have huge ramifications for the nation of Israel for centuries because the people did not do what God asked them to do. Now, to close this morning, I want to draw your attention to one of Samuel's key themes here at the end of this chapter. Notice he emphasizes the obedience of who? Of all we talked about this morning, which tribe is clearly in the foreground of obedience? Judah, especially in how he defeats the forces in the city of Jerusalem, specifically. Then you notice who was supposed to occupy and hold that city, but failed to do so. Which tribe? Benjamin. So all tribes are included here. But there's an emphasis in the story that Samuel has taught. There's a clear focus, a clear emphasis on Judah versus Benjamin. Judah does what's right. Benjamin did not do what was right. Now, who rises up from the tribe of Benjamin to lead the nation of Israel? Saul. And who rises up from the tribe of Judah to lead the nation of Israel? David, of course. Samuel is giving a story of apostasy in the land during this time of weak leadership and of repeated disobedience. But he's also making an argument for why Saul came first, but David had to come next. Why Saul had to be replaced by David. It traces to the nature even of the tribes themselves, of an obedient tribe versus a disobedient tribe. This is a theme that will be repeated. That's why chapters 1 and 2 are structured the way they are. They're less about the narrative of the time of Judges. They're more about preparing us to understand the whys of what's going on in the time of Judges and, of course, what follows in the monarchy. That's enough for one day. Your head's probably got more than a few things to think about and consider. Let's go to prayer and then corporate prayer as we finish for the morning. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for helping dissect and Navigate us through the details of your word by your spirit. Clearly, Father, there's there's so much more here than we may see at first that the wisdom of your word can never be plumbed, Father, the depths of it. And Father, even knowing that we still approach it with an anticipation that there'll be something there, Father, something you want us to remember personally, as well as something we'll learn that we'll apply later.
in our studies. And I pray, Father, that both have happened today for everyone who's heard. That you've convicted us, Father, about our patience at times and knowing that good comes in your timing and not ours. But also, Father, you've reminded us that the consequences of disobedience may far outlast our, our moments. And so for that reason, we concern ourselves with doing what is right and of listening to your word patiently and carefully. And we ask, Father, you give us a heart to do that and to live it out, to, to deny ourselves in the things that we desire and to, to live for you and in accordance with your word. As you ask the tribes to do, Father, to depend on you and to do your will. That's all we ask to do, Father. We ask you would give us the strength to do that and to continue in our studies in weeks to come. We pray for that as well in Jesus' name. Amen.